Hey, welcome to Crosscut Talks. I'm Mark Baumgarten, the managing editor at Crosscut. And this week I've been thinking about hype. In particular, about the excitement surrounding last week's congressional hearing on big tech. The hearing certainly appeared to be a big deal. Rarely is so much raw power gathered together in one room. It was the CEOs of Facebook, Amazon, Google, and Apple all streaming in via video conference to face off against lawmakers arguing that these titans of tech needed to be reined in. A hearing like this is the kind of thing that folks who believe in government intervention love. The dramatic enactment of a central conflict in modern American life, the balancing of the free market and the public good. In the press, the event had garnered comparisons to the appearance of big tobacco CEOs before another congressional subcommittee in 1994, an event that's credited with turning the tide against that industry. Yet, I couldn't help but feel that this was all a setup for a letdown. The sins of the tobacco industry were clear-cut, its benefits negligible. These tech companies, on the other hand, had clear benefits, and their sins are more murky. And anyway, hadn't we been here before? Some of these same CEOs had already sat before lawmakers in the past. What reason do we have to think that this time will be different? This week I'm speaking with Margaret O'Mara and asking her just that. A history professor focused on the intersection of technology and politics, O'Mara offers some historical perspective on what happened in that hours-long dance between lawmakers and the CEOs, what's different this time, and what she expects might happen now. Then, later in the show, I'll be talking to CrossCut staff writer Agatha Pacheco-Flores about the pandemic's impact on another kind of dance. But before we get to the interview, I want to make sure you remember to check out our upcoming Northwest Newsmakers event. We've got Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal joining us for a live virtual conversation on August 26th. Representative Jayapal was one of the lawmakers grilling the tech CEOs last week, so we'll make sure to ask her about that. For more information and to RSVP, go to crosscut.com events. Okay, on with the show. I'm joined now by Margaret O'Mara, an author, New York Times columnist, and most importantly, a professor of history at the University of Washington, where she focuses her research on the history of technology and American politics and the intersection of the two. After last week's congressional hearing on big tech, Margaret published a column in the New York Times that suggests the hearing marked the end of a cozy, decades-long relationship between these tech giants and federal lawmakers that blossomed in the booming 90s. She writes that the lightly regulated online economy we have today is a product of that decade, when Silicon Valley leaders persuaded starry-eyed lawmakers that young, scrappy internet companies could regulate themselves. Now those companies aren't so young, and the lawmakers aren't so starry-eyed. Um, Margaret wrote that the mood in the hearing room last week was more akin to the traffic safety hearings of the 1960s. She also noted that regulation is far from a foregone conclusion. So, um, Margaret, did I did I get that all right? Did I did I do you justice? Absolutely, yes. 
So, uh, you know, I thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, I really wanted to kind of start out by taking advantage of the fact that we are about a week out from these hearings. And, you know, the reports that came out sort of in the run up to and after the hearing, including your own column, really held it up as a very big moment. I wonder now, a week later, does it feel as big a moment as it did last week? Bigger, smaller? What, what does the historian in you say? Was it what did it live up to the hype? Uh, it did. Look, you know, these hearings are, are always to some degree hype, right? You know, law does not get laws do not get passed in a hearing. They're they're a part of a longer process. And they are also are processes when that also give a window into lawmakers thinking and kind of where people stand. And that they're also intended to sway public opinion, you know, everything from, you know, the Watergate hearings are perhaps the most famous of these, you know, hearings must, that became must-see TV and the McCarthy hearings. And, you know, these are historic moments. And, you know, I think that this hearing is important. It is part of a process. I think it's significant in that it's one piece of a much larger puzzle of a lot of things that are going on. There were very few softballs, <laughs> very few moments where the lawmakers were kind of conceding the argument that the CEOs were making. And that's really different, particularly coming from some of the Democrats on the committee. The real sort of precision and detail of, of some of these questions that were really delving into technical details and going straight to, you know, going past the, the folksy origin story that the CEOs were delivering at the beginning. We, we've, in a way, lawmakers for a long time you know, also promoted that kind of side of tech, kind of this is mm -hmm. amazing right. entrepreneurial story. And this felt quite different. You know, I had been reading a lot uh, about how this was the big tobacco moment, right, for uh, for big tech. And it never really quite fit for me. I just always felt like it was this this very imperfect analog, historical analog to try to make sense of this moment. You brought out a different moment in American history, which is the traffic safety hearings of, I believe, the 1960s, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. What was your reasoning for choosing to focus on that as an analog rather than big tobacco? What understanding of where we're at right now can we gain by looking back at what happened um, mm -hmm. in that process? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think the big tobacco analogy, you know, falls short in part because when you look back to 1994, when those hearings, famous hearings happened and all of the CEOs of these seven companies come and together are grilled by Congress, that was at a moment when the anti-smoking movement was really you know, had reached a peak. Many people were still smokers, but they didn't like it. There was the consensus on the health, um, the, the detriment to human health was very clear. Um, there was political momentum behind it. It was kind of unambiguously a bad product, bad for you product. Whereas this traffic safety hearings were, you know, here was an industry that kind of like tech, Detroit automakers were, they were an incredibly important part of the economy from the 19 teens forward. I mean, such a big deal that in the 1920s, when Henry Ford retrofitted his, closed down his factories to retrofit them to move from the Model T to the Model A, the, the U.S. went into a slight recession. Like they were mm -hmm. a kind of the tail that wagged the dog. And they were incredibly powerful in 
Washington in politics. You had CEOs of automakers who were cabinet members for both Democrats and Republicans. And so this kind of tight relationship, political relationship, I think is there's a parallel with tech. Look, Detroit car makers didn't get along with, with politicians all the time. They resisted regulation. There was a combative relationship. But I think that's similar to tech, too. You kind of have the, the push and pull. Injury and death on American roads had been an issue since the very first automobile rolled off the assembly line. And automakers had pushed back saying, first of all, it's, you know, look, it's bad roads and bad drivers, and and we can't be blamed for people driving badly. And in a way that reminds me a little bit of where the tech companies kind of place the accountability and the culpability. And also the automakers said, you know, we will regulate ourselves. We'll put seatbelts in the cars. We will put padding on the dashboard. And they did, but Hmm. they really, you know, they're kind of resistance to mandatory things like seatbelts. And so it really turns in the 60s. You have a really high level of auto ownership. It's a prosperous, you know, this is the post-war America. People have two cars in the driveway. More cars mean (laughs) more accidents. And there was this kind of, there'd been a lot of work done prior kind of research that was showing, look, if you made the car safer, then this would be much better. And so the, the drumbeat is growing. You have media, you have researchers, you have politicians of both parties. And I saw some really strong parallels. Obviously, history never repeats itself. This is not exactly the same thing. But I think it's a more useful analogy when we think about tech. Right. And yet still imperfect, uh, of course, as yeah. you said, uh, you know, one of the things that is imperfect about about, you know, both big tobacco and the, the safety hearings is the fact that it's pretty easy to understand what the what the harm was. You wrote this in your column. Cigarettes kill people. Auto accidents hurt and kill people. But what is it that Google does again? You know, mm-hmm. I mean, it's sort of like what is like how are these tech companies harming consumers? And that seems to be that that's the argument that the lawmakers need to make. It seems so much more difficult than the argument that lawmakers in the 60s or the mid 90s had to make. It is tough. These are brands that are very well liked at a time when Americans don't really like many institutions and you know, people people like Amazon. They like the the services they provide. So there is this cognitive dissonance and it is harder to see how is it harming me? Or you can say, oh, well, you know, any harm is just because I, you know, I check Facebook too much. It's my fault. Um, without kind of internalizing, okay, look, the whole the whole interface is designed to hook you in and keep you coming back. And so trying to advance this with with particular stories, this is what lawmakers have done before in these momentous hearings um, of other industries. There is a lot of work going on in the background uh, that is quite different than what we've seen before where and 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 I think another thing that that is much more clear on Capitol Hill and is being kind of dissected more is how these the biggest tech companies are very, very different. And we talk about big tech as this undifferentiated mass often, but they really are very, very different. And I think that reminds me of another historical analogy, which is apt, which is going back even further in time to the late 19th and early 20th century, when you look at another set of big high tech new economy industries that grow up in the late 19th century, railroads, oil, steel, et cetera. Mm. 
that are using new forms of business combination and, and mergers and acquisitions to grow very, very large and to eliminate the competition. And the, but the remedies are slightly different in these different, you know, depending on what the industries are and how they're doing what they're doing. And so that nuance, you know, it's hard to convey nuance in, in, in politics right. often, but that is going to be very important in, in actually addressing where the problems might be and, and doing it in a way that recognizes there are a lot of things these companies do that are very additive, that are positive, that, that you know, what, how can you still capture the good while limiting the bad? So maybe you don't see it as complex and difficult to parse as uh, as the layperson or myself does. Or maybe that's just kind of what we're being told, and that is um, a defense, right? Mm -hmm. I, I don't know. Do you do you feel do you feel frustrated at the way that you sometimes see um, this uh, this process uh, characterized? in that way? Well, I think it's what's remarkable is how quickly the conversation has evolved. I've been studying the tech industry for 20 years now. And, um, you know, first, you know, just the, the, the acknowledgement that tech does have a political history of sorts, you know, look, it's has a, it's had a relationship with the government, you know, it wasn't just a bunch of capitalist cowboys out in California, like doing their own thing and, and able to do what they were able to do because, government got out of the way. Um, government did right. get out of the way to some degree, but it actually was foundational in many different ways, not only in uh, funding research and development and education and all sorts of things in the during the Cold War and, and defense contracting in the Cold War, which is something that I write about in the first parts of my book, but also continuing in through the, that past 40 years of tax policy, of, of, of a federal policy that really was designed to make it a great, create a great environment for these tech companies to grow and grow. They did. Mm -hmm. So I think the other thing that, you know, that, that's, that we're wrestling with now is look, these, all of these companies are doing what Washington DC allowed them to do. <laughs> they, you know, they, it, it, whether it be the way that they pay their taxes <laughs> or don't pay their taxes, um, or, you know, the way that they, they, they artfully take advantage of the tax code, which is another issue that, that has, has brought, brought to the attention of Washington lawmakers to some degree, but is sort of overshadowed by, by what's going on now or privacy, um, data privacy. We know we don't have a data privacy law and we had a moment, you know, close to a half century ago when that was under discussion in Congress and it, it didn't kind of come out in a way that that constrained um, what these companies could could eventually do and just their their bigness I mean the 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 history that I write about in the column is kind of the the backdrop to what happened in the last 20 years which has been allowing hundreds and hundreds of acquisitions and um, not only in tech, but other industries as well, but kind of letting tech companies, you know, letting Facebook buy Instagram, letting, and, and, and many, many other examples that are less well-known to the public. But, you know, t Silicon Valley in the tech industry is kind of doing what, what the, the whole political environment allowed them to do. And so that's not to say that we should just say, oh, let them off the hook and, you know, go on your merry way. Right. Um, but recognize that public policy plays an absolutely integral role in creating market opportunity. 
and we need to reconsider okay whose opportunities do we where do we want to give oxygen and who who you know how do we want to let businesses grow and in what way and where does the kind of the next generation of innovation come from does it come from within these companies or does it come from um, creating space for a new set of companies to grow up hmm so that's that's interesting because you also write about in the 1970s is when really we saw venture capitalists and CEOs go to Capitol Hill and um, and uh, and the Carter White House and get um, tax cuts and and uh, looser financial regulations right so so that which really allowed for this um, economy to to grow in the way that it has and the interesting thing as you go through this history you know one of the things is just how bipartisan this effort was this was Mm -hmm. not a partisan issue you had you know carter on board clearly reagan definitely on board um you had the so-called atari democrats um it really has been kind of a you know a very cozy relationship up until um, recently. And so in the hearings, we see a bipartisan acknowledgement that there's something wrong, something needs to be done. Clearly, the Republicans and the Democrats had different points of interest here. Um, but where do they align? Like, where, where, where do we see bipartisan sort of... Um, uh, agreement on on what needs to be done. Mm-hmm. Well, Republicans and Democrats have always had slightly different approaches to to the tech industry and what should be done. In the '80s, the Democrats were advocating on it that the U.S. should have a national industrial policy, kind of similar to Japan. Like it involved tax cuts, but it also involved strategic investments in certain areas. You know, research-driven industries, education, job training, all sorts of things. The Republicans were like, "We just need to cut taxes." Um, but I think where then and now, where the Republicans and Democrats do overlap. Back in the 70s and 80s and into the 90s, Republicans and Democrats both agreed the technology industry is great and we need to encourage its growth. Like this is the future. Now, Republicans and Democrats, you know, on the hearing last Wednesday, they were, you know, the Republicans, most of them were bringing up issues of um, conservative bias, bias against conservatives in social media, um, limitations of free speech, um, the questions of kind of who gets to say what on the internet. And Democrats were bringing up a very different set of issues about competitiveness and squelching potential competitors and that sort of thing. But I think the basic premise where they both met was these are really, really, really big platforms that have too much power over what we can do. And, and that the self-regulation of these platforms has not resulted in something that's, that either right. party can see. So that's what's interesting to me. For so long, both Republicans and Democrats, who could not agree on anything? Like, keep in mind, you right. know, we are at a very partisan moment indeed. But it wasn't like everyone was sitting around, you know, singing together and holding hands before. <laughs> they had very different ideas about the means to the end, the means to advance mm. Silicon Valley's growth. Now they have different ideas about the means to the end of containing or creating some guardrails or some rules around Silicon Valley's largest companies. And that's super significant. So what does regulation look like? 
it sounds like different things for different companies, right? Yeah. So antitrust enforcement takes a lot of forms and it isn't just the break it up, right? That's one. Right, right. But I think there are other instructive examples, examples that show this can be good for the economy and also isn't too terrible for the for the companies themselves. <laughs> um, so one is the break them up model, right? Which which actually has been more rare than you would think. But one of the most famous breakups was the forced breakup in the early 20th century of Standard Oil. So John D. Rockefeller's great empire was forced to break up into different parts. Now, that turned out to be a pretty sweet deal for John D. Rockefeller. The, the parts were greater than the sum of the whole in terms of, you know, the fortune that was created. You sense that, you know, could be something that lawmakers are thinking about in terms of Amazon or another good example is AT&T, which is a different sort of antitrust enforcement. So, yes, mm -hmm. AT&T was eventually broken up in the early 80s. But before that, for seven decades, it was a highly regulated monopoly. The regulators realized that in order to have universal telephone service, you can't have hundreds of different companies kind of relaying one call from another from another. It's just you can't have any sort of long distance so it, it makes sense to have one company. But AT&T at the time also had the telegraph company. They kind of controlled everything. They were telephones and telegraphs. Mm -hmm. So they said, look, Western Telegraph has to be a separate company. And AT&T, right. you can give, you can do universal telephone service, but you have to stay in that lane. And over the course of the 20th century, AT&T being a, you know, big for-profit company, wanted to veer out of it repeatedly and tried to stray mm -hmm. into computing again and again and again. And actually the consent decrees that, were kind of the results of AT&T being swatted back into its telephone-only lane, were actually incredibly generative for the tech industry. 1956, there's a consent decree comes down from the uh, Department of Justice on AT&T that says, okay, the transistor, which, you, which was invented in your industrial research laboratory, Bell Labs, in 1947, you know, this is the steam pump. This is the, this is the, the, the device that kickstarts the entire high-tech revolution. Right, right. AT&T, you need to license transistor technology for free to anyone who wants it. And Gordon Moore, who is one of the founders, co-founders of Intel, he's the guy, Moore's law, the kind of rule of, you know, kind of microchip growth that, that Silicon Valley right. lives by. Gordon Moore later said, we really would have not had a silicon semiconductor industry in Silicon Valley without that without the consent decree, because the transistors now were free to any company to pick up and iterate on and, you know, turn into a product. Hmm. So break them up is one thing, standard oil. AT&T regulated monopoly could be another approach, you know, and there's all sorts of regulation, degrees of regulation within within that, that that we could see. And and we could also see, you know, a kind of maybe for Facebook, you know, if Facebook's forced to separate Instagram and WhatsApp, that would be kind of comparable to AT&T being said, you know, can't do telegraph too, just telephones. So hmm. there's a really, there's some really interesting analogies that I think are, are again, not perfect matches, but I, it helps us understand that there's, there's a path for these companies to continue to be extremely successful to deliver the products that people, that consumers like, that that also kind of put some, kind of take the balance of power and put some back in the hands of the consumer and of the regulator. Hmm. It's really interesting what you just said about the AT&T and the semiconductor, because it really speaks to regulation being a potentially 
generative activity、mm-hmm. by the government. And I wonder when lawmakers are looking at enforcing regulation, are they thinking about that aspect of it as well? Yeah, I hope it's part of the conversation. I was just really interested by the the level of precision and detail in so many of the lawmakers' questions、um, that were being asked on Wednesday. Uh, it just it, there's kind of just a new level of of understanding of what the remedies might be. I think there's another instance in when regulation or even the threat of action or can be you know can can change corporate behavior, and we're perhaps seeing some of that. I mean, there are two two of the most famous. Antitrust cases in tech were two that didn't result in companies breaking up, which was IBM starting in the late 1960s, going all the way through the early 80s, and Microsoft in the late 90s, and and those are really interesting too. People have a lot of different takes about okay, what did that mean for innovation? What happened with Microsoft in the 90s was kind of this similar thing to hap- that happens to IBM, which is that. The antitrust case being brought against them kind of slows their role, for lack of a better term. It kind of curbs their more most competitive instincts. Microsoft, in particular, was incredibly competitive, aggressive company、um, that was part of you know a secret to its success, and kind of still I think saw itself even in the late '90s. You know, Bill Gates was still running the company. Was still in startup mode, right? Mentally, it was a huge company. It、right. <laughs> kind of controlled、right. so much, but, and this is true of a lot of these companies. You know, they try to kind of keep this. Oh, we're just a scrappy, you know, David against the Goliath. You know, we think different. We're not evil. We're, we're you know, we're and and then all of a sudden they're this enormous company, and they're still like, we're just a startup, and and they kind of、right. like, we're going to do whatever. We're going to keep on doing what we did to get this successful. Not realizing that okay, when you're that big, you can't be that aggressive. So. Even just the threat can have a an effect on what the market looks like. You know, we've done this before when you've have very, very large, very large tech companies. There's been government action to curb their, to create space in the marketplace for somebody else. Okay, I've got one more question for you, and this、uh, this this is maybe one that you're not comfortable with being a historian, but I'm going to ask you to look into the future.、Mm-hmm. Given what you know and what you imagine is going to happen, what do you think the tech economy looks like ten years from now? Oh gosh, that's really interesting.、Um, I think coronavirus <laughs> has changed a lot, but I think the、yeah. pandemic、um, and the the kind of shift to working from home, which for many workers will be long term if not permanent,、um, has really、right. sort of accelerated that change, and the dependence of The U.S. economy on some of these the service products and platforms of these companies both strengthens their position in terms of saying "Don't break us up because our bigness serves you well," but also I think makes it more difficult to say, "Oh, let's stay our happy, reg- lightly regulated selves." So I do see more kind of a a, a new a kind of a new era likely coming. Now, look the. Some of the rules are going to still apply, and this is, you know, one of the things that that tech companies often argue is, look, let the market take care of itself. Like,、um, you know, the Microsoft case is a great one. You know, it's brought because Microsoft was bundling the Internet Explorer browser in its Windows software, and in doing so, was squashing the mar- then the market superstar Netscape. 
And by the time the trial winds to an end, Netscape is pretty much out of business <laughs> and the technology right. has moved forward. It's not browser wars. It's, you know, it's moved on to other things to search and social mobile and, and cloud. And, and so, you know, in 10 years, we are going to have a different set of companies that you've never heard of that we're talking about, but it's going to be a lot more difficult to have those companies grow and become brand names and become, you know, advancing kind of the state of the art in an environment that the, I mean, the company, the bigness of these five companies is, is unprecedented that you have a tech landscape that's so dominated on the particularly, well, both consumer and enterprise side dominated by a few players, which is different than the nineties when you had Microsoft and you had a bunch of others, right? Software was Microsoft and then everyone else. And now you have all these different big companies. This is a sea change in so many ways. 2020 is changing a lot of things. It's a, it's a turning point. I feel like this is, I can safely say that probably future editions of our history textbooks will have eras that, you know, start and end in 2020. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so what will the new tech era look like? Um, it will be somewhat different and it may not be everything that the kind of antitrust crusaders want to see. It may not be everything that te- the tech companies want to see, but it will, we are moving into a different phase, I think. All right. That's Margaret O'Mara. You can read her in the New York Times, and I'm sure she'll have more to say as this story unfolds. Margaret, thanks for coming on the show and giving us some historical perspective on this. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Hello there. I'm Stephen Haig, senior video producer at CrossCut. Today, there are so many unique stories springing from Seattle and Washington State. And I work in a newsroom full of smart, dedicated journalists who not only report on the people and news in our communities, but make that information relevant, usable, and interesting to your life. I'm so lucky to be involved in so many aspects of this work. I produce the series Mossbacks Northwest and the Crosscut Now news videos that appear on KCTS 9. I'm also part of a team that covers the area's culture, bringing life to artists and musicians, spotlighting the diversity of creativity and invention in our area. All of this is free to you, no paywalls, no subscriptions, but it does have very real costs. Crosscut is nonprofit Northwest news and culture that depends on the support of our readers, viewers, and listeners. We've built out our newsroom at a time when others have contracted or laid off journalists because we have faith in your support. Supporting Crosscut is so easy to do. Just go to crosscut.com donate, or the next time you're enjoying a Crosscut story online and you see that donate button on your screen, you know what to do. Make a donation that's right for you and your budget. Thank you for your support. I'm speaking now with Agatha Pacheco Flores, one of Crosscut's arts and culture reporters. Recently, Agatha wrote about Seattle's partner dancing scene and the impact the pandemic has had on it. Agatha, welcome to Crosscut Talks. Thank you for having me. So let's start with the basics here. Give us a sense of how big this scene is in Seattle. Um, Who are the players here and how many people are involved? It's kind of hard to say how big it really is because it is it grows or it is in so many different sectors. I mean, there's like the teachers, there's 
um, the clubs. There's all this these places that you can go dance at. I'd say it's really concentrated in Capitol Hill, and it's a very active scene. I mean, you know, on any given week- weekend before, or even during the weekdays before the pandemic, you could find some kind of social dance event in Seattle. And can you give us a sense of exactly what happens in these social dances? You, In your reporting, you tell us about the owner of Century Ballroom on Capitol Hill, how they lead classes. What does one of these events look like? Yeah. If you were to go to Century Ballroom before the pandemic, you were likely to show up to a place that was full of people mingling. And then Hallie Cooperman, the owner and founder of Century Ballroom, would usually get everybody to kind of stand in a circle. And she would give all the dancers a little quick how-to, whether it was the basics to salsa or swing or bachata. And then she would ask everybody to dance with the person next to them. And then people would just keep switching partners every song to practice and, and get familiar with the dance and the moves. So this is interacting in close quarters with uh, strangers, with multiple strangers. So, so obviously this is not really in line with, um, with the, the restrictions uh, concerning the pandemic right now. Yeah, not at all. Um, dancing, you know, you're really close to people's face and you're, right, you're right. touching hands. It's not, it's not necessarily the best place to go if you're sick, for sure. Yeah. And there really is risk here, right? You wrote in your story about an outbreak in the Detroit ballroom scene. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. So in Detroit, there was a cluster of coronavirus cases. And it's actually tricky because a lot of people didn't want to talk about it because they don't want to stigmatize dancing. Um, So it's hard to say even uh, the the story on, on that um, instance, it's, it's hard to give a specific estimate or whether even, um, dancing was the cause of, of the deaths in that community. There's an estimate between like five to 30 plus people that may have died because of the coronavirus within that, um, ballroom dance community. But again, it's, it's not, it hasn't been investigated whether, um, that was because of, of them continuing to dance late into March. So, These businesses in Washington state, they're shut down currently, or they're not having dancing lessons. They're not having social dancing at all. And economically, that certainly is a difficulty. Uh, I wonder, though, how did the people you spoke with feel about not being able to teach dance or take part in dance with um, with their their potential students? Yeah, I mean, when you look at what dancing is to them. It's not just this way to make money. This is their passion. It's been their lifelong passion. It's they've cultivated. So with Hallie Cooperman, for example, she's kind of established this community in Capitol Hill for ballroom dancing. And it's a part of them. It's it's something that you cultivate, not just within the community, but you also cultivate your body to dance. And it's, there's all these emotions, particularly grief for not being able to, you know, do this activity that doesn't only give you social interaction, but it's an exercise, it's a practice. And, um, you know, lots of people, lots of dancers are seeing their bodies. There's some kind of atrophy in their bodies because they're not practicing as often. Um, It's all Mm. kinds of different griefs over, you know, just that loss, that cultural loss. And 
are are you a dancer? Is this, uh, you know, do you come to this story with some firsthand knowledge? Uh, yeah. I mean, before the pandemic, you could definitely find me um, in Capitol Hill on a Friday or a Saturday. If there wasn't anything important going on in my life, I was probably dancing. And even now, like during the pandemic, I find ways to dance, even if it's not at the Century Ballroom or at one of the many mm. places to dance in Capitol Hill. I like to dance when I'm doing dishes like it's it's hard when you are a dancer you want to dance like you hear a rhythm or you hear a beat and you want to dance and that is so much funner when you do it with people because even though you have different bodies you can feel that um that beat guiding your bodies in similar ways it's it's very therapeutic so these businesses are not going to be able to open until we get to phase four. And we're currently Washington State is at phase two. So we are a ways away from uh, from people being able to dance together again. Um, you you write about some of the ideas for how these businesses can move forward, some of the things that they're doing to stay engaged with their customers. Um what kind of what kind of things are they doing? Yeah, so for the Century Ballroom, for example, they've turned their um, ballroom into a very socially distanced dining room hall. It's leaning heavily on its sister business, the Tin Table, which is a restaurant. Other people who don't have these spaces like that, for example, Jim Chow or, or Vanessa Villalobos, um, are just teaching classes online. That's a big pivot that most of the um, dance community, whether it's ballroom or partner dancing or just um, you know, the companies that, that had shows and things like that have pivoted to online dancing, which is different. Uh, Jim Chow actually used to host Salsa on Alki, and that was outdoor dancing. And, and in some ways, that seems like the most viable option, but because it's still with people and people would want to change partners, it's not necessarily ideal. I have seen some people now do solo dancing a lot. So, um, I mean, just last night there was people at Jimi Hendrix Park and they were doing solo bachata, which bachata you usually dance with a partner and it's very close. It's very intimate, mm. but they were just dancing it by themselves and they were kind of had distance between them. So, I mean, I think people are going to look for ways to dance and innovate. Um, but for now, it seems like partner dancing is mostly going to be solo dancing. I'm curious if when, when partner dancing comes back, back or is when people are able to partner dance again, do these business owners worry that people won't feel safe dancing with a stranger, even if we do have a vaccine, even if things are um, ostensibly safe? Yeah, I mean, I think the coronavirus has really impacted a lot of people and has created just, depending on who you are, how you react. I mean, I think um, even if there is a vaccine, that is so politicized now, too. It's like, is everybody going to be getting the vaccine? And, you know, you still can't really, like, trust everything. And so as a dancer, I mean, I think people will do what they have to do to go dancing. But there's also some hesitancy because of the fa the very real reality that people are skeptical of vaccines now as opposed to, like, welcoming of them. So, so one more question. When you are able to go back to a ballroom, to social dance again. I wonder, what is the dance that you will do, and what's the song that you hope is playing? <sighs> okay, so this is a, such a good question, because there's so much that I'd like to dance. There's so much that I'd like, so many different dances I'd like to do. But, I mean, I think in my heart, I'm a cumbia dancer. Um, my mom mm. grew up in Mexico City, and... Cumbia, even though it comes from Colombia, um, is very 
prevalent in Mexico, especially in, in kind of urban areas. And it's really fun to dance. It's really easy to dance. I love teaching people how to dance it because it's so easy. And, you know, you don't really hear a lot of cumbia here in Seattle. I, I wrote about that in a story a long time ago about cumbia in Seattle. But, um, yeah, I, I would probably dance cumbia because that's my go-to. It's really fun. It's really easy. And I think... I think I would like to dance to this really old cumbia song from Colombia called Lejanía, which is about um, being far away from your homeland and, and, you know, just this that feeling of like nostalgia for your homeland. But I mean, I could dance to anything. That's the thing about dancing is it's hard to pick because when you hear the rhythm and you feel your body like saying like this, you want to move to this, like you just move. All right. That's Agatha Pacheco Flores. She is an arts and culture writer at Crosscut. You can read her story about the partner dancing scene in Seattle and also that older story about <laughs> Cumbia, which is great, at crosscut.com. Uh, Agatha, thank you so much for coming on and sharing the story with us. No, thank you so much. Thank you. And that's it for this week's episode. Thanks again to Agatha and to Margaret O'Mara for joining me. This episode was engineered by Rusty Bacall and produced by Jake Newman. You can subscribe to Crosscut Talks on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. For more on the Crosscut Talks podcast, go to crosscut.com talks. And if you like the show, please review us. It really helps other people find us. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit crosscut.com. Crosscut Talks is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Mark Bumgarten. We'll be back next week with another episode.